So does anyone have a question? I know there's been good discussion. There's also been some good questions asked, so please don't be shy. Yes, Joe. Okay, Josh, what's your simplest, like, on the couch, after dinner, I'm over here, to the right. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> There's a voice coming. No. Um, when a, a person who's not of Christian background and doesn't know the story, what's your kind of simple cup of tea and a bicky version of why, why do you follow Jesus? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I pull out the television and I pull up a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation. And <laughs> no, uh, big picture, man, I, I just love to share from my own story of how I've encountered Christ. And um, the nutshell version, I think one of the biggest themes for me has been that it's not about us going out to find God. It's God coming after us, you know, that I think so many, for so many folks, like the default association with Religion in general and Christianity as well is a sense of it's just one more vehicle to try and go out and find God, you know? And I think the reality is Christianity is like the inverse. It's how God has come to find us in Christ. And um, and so sitting on the couch, like, I personally, I love to ask good questions. I think that's one of the, a lost art today. And it probably doesn't sound like that today because I've been talking for hours at, at, at you all. But... Uh, but I do think that like there's a power and a lot start to asking good questions and wanting to get to know someone's story and in some ways more than me sharing my own ideas, my own things, you know, like I think we can actually embody the pursuit of God in other people's lives by asking good questions to try and get to know their story and trusting God for him to surface the right times and moments where, you know, uh, I, yeah, but it seems like time and time again when we actually embody the love of Jesus by really pursuing people where they're at and not just pursuing them by doing stuff on them, but pursuing them by wanting to get to know. We're talking about stories today, getting to know their, their story. And it's often in that process where it feels like we start to see more clearly where scripture, where the gospel, where Christ intersects and connects most powerfully with them. I had a friend once years ago, I loved his piece. He, he was like, you know, I, I feel like for years, I thought of things like evangelism or sharing the faith or, you know, he's like, the image I had in my head was almost like a chess match, you know, where I'm on this side of the table and they're on this side of the table and I make their, my move, they make theirs and my goal is to beat you, you know, and so I study strategy and get all the arguments and all the things and, you know, and he's like, man, now I realize in retrospect, like, I think of a lot more today as like I'm trying to set someone up on a blind date, like with someone that I actually think is the best for them, you know, like I actually believe Christ is the most meaningful fulfillment of all of their deepest hopes and longings and relationship and everything is, is ultimately found in Christ. And part of that means I actually want to get to know them and their story. I want to share how he's been that in my life. I want to, you know, but ultimately it's like I want to actually introduce them to a person, not so much as beat them at an idea, you know, kind of thing. Yes, I know that would be my... Hey, Josh. Um, question uh, back to the first session on, on hell. Yes. Um, so you had these four scenarios of, you know, the wedding proposal, whatever, and um, the last answer was go your own way. Mm. And it sounded a bit like, you know, people can choose, I'll just do my own thing, I'll just mm. go my own way, and, and God lets people do that. Now, my question... Um, you know, my understanding of hell is also a place created for demons and evil mm -hmm. and evil demonic forces. So how does that then go together? Uh, you know, you've got a place where they are going to be, you know, exist in as well as humans 
going their own way. So to what extent then, you know, the idea of people choosing their own way, are they still free to even do that? I mean, they're, you know, what's your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, yeah great question. Uh, so I do think there's um, kind of two, two angles at both end. You know, like uh, one way of putting it, if I hear you right, might be like, is it so much that, that we choose and, or is it that God does? <laughs> you know, does God send us there or do we choose that kind of thing? And I actually think it's a, it's a both end in scripture. So um, uh, one piece that I emphasize in the book that maybe didn't come out as much in this morning we were looking at it is that um, there's also the, the judgment of God. I think that they've seen around like the final judgment where all of humanity is raised from the grave to stand before Christ and Christ actually, I think part of what's happening in the final judgment is um, Jesus is calling out who we really are. Like he actually knows us better than we know ourselves, actually knows what we truly want. Um, and this is where I think it's significant, the language of God actually sending us, you know, like away from me, I never knew you, depart from me, Matthew 25, like into the cursed fire that was created, not for humanity, it was created for the devil and his angels, but you've aligned yourself with him and against me. Going, you know, and, and so there is this, um, God is not just kind of a passive bystander, like, hey, pick door A or door B and go through it and have fun. You know, like, like God is actually sovereignly raising us from the grave, calling out who we really are, what we really want, and sending us in, you know, into that, that kind of reality. Um, but I think the the, the piece that I want to kind of push on um, as far as, you know, the popular caricature, I think, is that almost like uh, God is sending us in contradiction to what we've chosen, you know? Like, rather than I think God sending us is in alignment with what we've chosen. It's like it's in alignment with uh, the reality of the condition of our hearts, if that makes sense. Um, so that's one, and the second part of hearing your question that's a really great question is um, kind of like, is, is it a power or is it a place, right? Because I kind of emphasize in some ways talking about hell as a power today. We see it at work in the world, in genocide, sex trafficking, war, like these horrible things. We see the power of the enemy at work unleashing destruction in our world. But I hear you saying, rightly so, like, but it's not only a power, like it's actually there's a place element too. And so is it a power or a place? And I, I think both, you know? Um, so the, uh, and I'm thinking, uh, let's say, uh, okay, being an American, can be self-critical, like in uh, uh, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? If I were Iraqi or Afghanistani or something, I'm living there and there are the bombs coming down from US fighter jets, you know, and, and you see the explosion from a drone or something. And if someone were to ask you in that moment, like, is the United States a power or a place? I think you would go both, right? Like, we're like I'm experiencing the power firsthand, and yet the, this power is coming from a place, kind of a distant place. And I think in the biblical story, there's something like that where, um, to go back to that James image of the, the tongue unleashing destruction like a wildfire in the world, that's kind of the power element, right? But he says, when that happens, it's itself set on fire by hell. It's coming from a place. And he uses the word Gehenna there. And so there's a sense that uh, there's a place characterized by spiritual evil and rebellion against God and all that. And yet from that place, whatever that is, it almost feels like an anti-place, like an anti-creation space or something. And yet whatever that is, it's actually there is a, a force at work to unravel God's good creation. And we experience that power at work in our world today. Uh, so I think the hope of the gospel is when the power gets kicked back to the place it came from, right? Like it's, it's the, the power is getting expelled from 
God's good world and contain where it can no longer hurt and destroy? It's a good question. So I hear you kind of asking, like, do we choose or does God send us? And I'd say yes, <laughs> both, you know. Is it a power or a place? Yes. I think kind of a both end on both fronts. Um, but some of the ways I was talking about earlier maybe over, you know, or emphasize some, and there are other ones that, you know, like you're saying, need to be emphasized too. Yes. Yeah, so there's, um, great, so the question being, uh, aren't there some verses where Jesus like descends into hell and goes into the place and all? Um, there, there's a number of questions around interpretation. There are a number of different traditions trying to say, what's happening with that when Jesus descends into hell? Um, but one thing that I think is interesting for this is uh, there are four different words in the Bible that get translated into English as hell. And so sometimes there's some nuance and complexity there that I think gets lost in the English translation. So quick overview on those. So the Old Testament, the primary word is the Hebrew word shale, and it occurs a ton. Uh, shale is underground, but it's not like we tend to think like the torture chamber, you know? It's underground, but it's just the grave. It's kind of where everybody goes when they die, good and bad. Jacob goes there, Abraham goes there, the righteous go there, the wicked go there. It's just kind of shale is the grave. When you hear about the gates of hell, uh, that's usually like the gates of shale. It is, it's because uh, back in the day, People got buried, and they put up gates to protect from grave robbers, right? You know, so there's a picture of uh, everyone goes to shale. New Testament, um, that word shale often gets brought into Greek for Jewish people as Hades. Right? And, and so uh, sometimes you have Hades gets translated in English as hell, and that's got a whole host of associations. It's got the Old Testament shale associations, and then it's got Greco-Roman associations with what Hades was. Uh, and then the third word is Gehenna, and that's kind of the dominant New Testament primary word. And then there's a fourth word, uh, Tartarus, which is, that's, I don't know, it's rare, and it seems to be more like um, beneath shale, like kind of where angel, like demonic angels, like the rebellion against God, kind of um, a, a container for the demonic until the final judgment, and God deals with that too. But what's interesting, the three words, so Shale in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament, and Tartarus, all have to do with pre-resurrection. So they're kind of like where things go now before ultimately God comes to establish the fullness of his kingdom post-resurrection. And then Gehenna is the one word that's more used uh, for post-resurrection, like post-God's coming kingdom and all, which is why I kind of emphasize and spend more time there. That's usually what we're thinking of when we're talking about the final state. Yeah. Oh, Josh, I just wanted to ask, um, when you were talking about the 800 uh, treaties that were, mm. um, you know, broken, yeah. um, do you know much about the Australian uh, Aboriginals too? You've read something up on it, I assume. Yes, read a bit, but not not in enough detail to be really super knowledgeable. Or anything. Just wanted to know. That's yeah. yeah, I know that's been an unfortunate history in many parts of the world, treatment of indigenous peoples and history there. Yeah. Hi, Josh. Oh, oh, okay. oh someone <laughs> else. You go first. Um, yeah, I just want to ask a question about how does God use our prayers and for his purposes and mm. to bring about the change that's needed when in a world where 
we've got I'll do the USA thing. Sure. We've got the Christians aligned with Donald Trump and saying, you know, well, really. Some of the Christians yeah. aligned. No, no, no. No. <laughs> uh, I, no, I did say the Christians aligned. Yeah. Um, and then the, you've got the others who are saying, what is wrong with those other Christians who are all aligned with Trump? Yeah. How does God use um, our prayers and yeah. I guess our thoughts and our votes for his purposes mm. in those sorts of situations? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, as far as, you know, how God uses a prayer, well, maybe just, uh, maybe first off, a few of my reflections on, like, the last election and, all, you know, as an American in the midst of it all. Um, one piece, you know, I do think there's a complexity and a nuance. So, uh, first thought would be, um, there was a saying in the early church that often got passed around, bandied about, that it was rooted in some Old Testament kind of ideas, but was... Um, God gives uh, people the leaders they deserve. <laughs> it's kind of that thing, you know? And so, <laughs> that, <laughs> and this, uh, this, this could make sense sometimes more in the context, you know, like, a, but it's interesting in the context of a democracy where, well, really, this is kind of, you know, it was one thing to say it when your leaders were sort of imposed upon you, you didn't, didn't necessarily have a voice, and that was where the early church was saying it. But it seems, if, even if, whether it was applicable then or not, it seems very applicable in a democracy. And it struck me during the election that like Clinton and Trump, Hillary and Donald Trump, both seemed like reflections from two different angles of some of our worst societal characteristics looking back at us in the mirror, you know? And kind of a darned if you do, darned if you don't. <laughs> you know, like, like, so it was striking to me the um, reflection of what felt like some of our worst characteristics as a society, as a people kind of looking back at us. Uh, and then with Trump, it was interesting, you know, the, the stat, I don't know if it's here, but in the US, the stat gets thrown out a lot of, I think it was 71% uh, of American evangelicals voted for Trump and all. Um, it's really interesting when you get into the details of what do you, what's meant by that stat, because uh, once they start drilling down, I can't remember specifically, once you, what do you mean by Amer evangelical order, once they drill down to, do you attend church three times or more a month on average? The number drops radically. Once you account for, do you have an active prayer life? Do you read scripture? Like the number drops radically. So often in America, sometimes the stats can be a little misleading because there's such a huge, uh, still in parts of the country, kind of cultural Christianity that will identify as Christian but not. And then even within that, I think, you know, there's a whole, there were those, there are those who are kind of enthusiastic, yay Donald Trump. Then you have those who are, uh, often was called like kind of the plug your nose and vote, right? you know, where it was like, we don't like him, we think he stinks, but it's better than the alternative, you know, or like it was worst to, worse to two evils kind of question. And so all that, it feels like there's a complexity there. And then the question of how does God use our um, prayers in the midst of it? And I, I think at the end of the day, I think God loves that we pray more than what we pray. You know, sometimes I feel like we get too focused on, I got to have the right words, I got to have the right thing, you know, and I think more, bringing our hearts fully before Christ. And I think the, the work of the Spirit at times is able to translate the cry of our hearts into what is maybe even better for us than what we actually know we need, you know? Um, and so I think in the midst of all of the confusion, especially in the states right now, just the political division and polarization and demonization, all the different things that are happening on that front, that we would seek Christ and lay our hearts fully before him and trust him to take our prayers and work them into something hopefully better and redemptive than we might even know how to pray. Hi, Josh. Oh, hey, Thomas. <laughs> um, hell's a really difficult topic. Yes. A complex one. And it seems to me um, 
there's been a strong push towards this idea of annihilationism. Mm, yeah. Of, um, instead of uh, going to a place of eternal suffering, it's a place of non-existence. Yes. Um, can can you? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. Um, so I'd say, you know, when it comes to annihilationism, there's really uh, two, two strands I've seen of kind of motivation behind it, you know. Uh, the one that I kind of hit on, you know, talked about more earlier, uh, I think historically the, there was often a sense of, um, like I said, responding to the caricature. It's kind of, oh, that just looks ugly, God. Can't you kind of put people out of their misery? And it was almost more of an emotional argument, like a feeling uh, maybe a revulsion or a difficulty with uh, maybe a, I'd say a misconception of what's actually going on with hell, and so it was sort of a lean towards um, annihilation by that. Uh, I would say today there's another strand that I've seen kind of pick up momentum that is more driven by um, uh, one, like some strong exegesis, like really grappling with what does scripture say on these passages. Um, even though I don't land hermeneutically with where some of those arguments go, uh, I do think there's a very compelling case that some have made. Um, one interesting figure, if you're interested in kind of looking it up, researchers, uh, Preston Sprinkle is a, a friend. He's someone who wrote um, Erasing Hell with kind of Francis Chan. They kind of co-authored, but he really did like kind of a lot of the like, work on after Rob Bell's Love Wins. And then Preston, in the context of study, actually kind of changed his perspective towards annihilationism and has written some stuff on it that's, um, that would help give at least kind of uh, where it's less of an emotional argument of, I don't like that, let's see what's said, and more of a, I'm actually trying to grapple with what scripture says, and it, it leads me here. Um, some of the key ideas in that movement would be less of a, um, it's not so much God going, you rejected me, I'm going to annihilate you. It would more be, we only have fullness of life with God, and similar to Adam and Eve and their distance from God, um, eventually are on a trajectory towards death. So there's this sense that God raises all humanity for judgment, those who are brought with him into life, and those who are sent away on a trajectory that ultimately leads to death. Um, I think uh, my, you know, a few of my uh, hesitations with it are, you know, uh, there are a couple things, but um, one is I, I find the concept of what sometimes we call like double jeopardy kind of weird, like, God, why do you raise them again only to judge them if it's just you're raising them from what you're sending them into kind of thing, you know? Um, it seems a little strange. Uh, the bigger one for me is kind of that significance and power of Christ's resurrection. It seems like part of what Christ is accomplishing is conquering our annihilation and death. And like death is an annihilation of sorts that Jesus is, is winning his victory over. Um, so it seems like it's... Um, uh, death that is the enemy of God is having a sort of secondary victory once more. Um, and the third, even like, I, I won't want to base it on kind of the emotional argument, but on the whole question of, um, I still think there's a pull sometimes even behind the scenes in that, that it seems more merciful for people to go to non-existence. And I find non-existence less merciful than um, a handing over to underpinning. So I think of my neighbor, you know, I think of a neighbor back home and um, someone who just had explored Jesus, we'd had some conversations about, and just didn't want, he didn't want Christ, you know? And when I think about him, like, I kind of had this sense that, like, yeah, he deep down, he doesn't want Jesus. And it seems more 
in alignment with the character of the God of the Bible I know overall and, um, and in alignment with the story as it unfolds as a whole, that rather than either annihilating or sending him to an eventual walking off the cliff, so to speak, of death, that God actually, my hope is that, yeah, that God actually sustains him in, maybe it's a corrupted condition, but condition nonetheless with what he's chosen. Um, it seems to just kind of fit that puzzle piece into the story as a whole as the more uh, in alignment with the character and goodness and beauty of God. Yeah, it's a good question. Hello. Oh. I've been told to stand up. Um, I have two questions. I'm yeah. going to barrel them together. Double barrel. <laughs> okay, over here. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. I feel like uh, all of the paradigm shifts are kind of interconnected in the whole story link. So. Yeah. Um, my first question is, um, I was speaking with a friend last night. Uh, we went out. She's an atheist, and yeah. we were talking about faith, and I had made this comment about how I believe that being a Christian in today's society, there's a social kind of persecution or censorship that comes with kind of what that is. Mm. Um, and so we started talking about what that looked like and also what my faith was. And she, what you said earlier about how peop giving people an opportunity to share their story. And one of the things that she mentioned was her family, there was this kind of, her parents were quite angry, they were maybe abusive or could be seen as abusive. And um, I realized that a big tension for her would always be kind of God's wrath. Or mm. this perception of it. Yeah. And so you talked a lot about kind of this perception of the genocide of God in the mm. Old Testament. And you mentioned the early phases of it. So the, the time where um, Israel had moved from kind of kin groups to tribal uh, mm. kind of establishments. But then there's that transition to kingdom and empire. And you've mm. got, you know, Saul, the beginning of that kind of empire. And then you have David, Solomon, mm. and then kind of its trajectory. And during that period of time, it was quite affluent and quite powerful. And yes. they were an, a kind of a power to be reckoned with. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you a question about uh, Saul and the Malachites. And mm. I know with the Can Canaanites, mm. Saul says to them, leave before, because we're going to come and we're going to annihilate these guys. Yeah. And then you've got Saul doesn't actually kill Agag's wife. Mm. Um, and so there's that tension there, because that wasn't quite a holy war, but there was something there. And yes, there is kind of, but that was like God mandated it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't Saul doing, you know, his naughty little things that he does. Um, it was kind of... <laughs> <laughs> God-given order, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it was. And actually, what he did that was naughty was he, he kind of... <laughs> well, he, she didn't he kill was him, gracious yeah. I guess what him, yeah. some people might perceive as merciful yeah. and so I wanted to ask the question around it because in my mind this friend of mine that's the bit that she's she could reconcile with mm. the like the narrative of the holy war and yeah. kind of the we talked about the exodus from um, Egypt a bit um, but I think this part she couldn't necessarily and then kind of following on from that you mentioned in <coughs> the the session just before the idea of um, holy affection yeah. and one of the things is I think the counter to God's wrath as it were is kind of how do we talk about God's that love that you mentioned mm. like how he fully loved God but he also fully loved us yeah. and I think that's a really hard thing to actually mm. talk about with others yeah. so I'm gonna leave it there no that's great okay <laughs> yeah uh, there's a couple of great questions in there so maybe, no that's perfect yeah <laughs> First off, I'll hit, so Samuel and Saul and the Amalekites. So in, 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 in Samuel, there's a story where Saul, uh, God 
has him basically wipe out the Amalekites, and it's kind of one of the, it's the other. We talked about Joshua 9 to 12 earlier, and this is the other passage where God's like, show no mercy, utterly destroy them, not leave alive anything that breathes. Um, and so they do. A uh, few observations. Uh, a lot of the same things we talked about earlier. It's a, the context is a city. It's kind of ambush on a city, so it's a military city, same kind of deal. Um, it's a military encounter with, uh, you know, uh, it's military battle with soldiers and all that. Um, and it's um, the uh, part of the question you raised, something that comes up here is, uh, it says, utterly destroyed them, not leave anything in the breeze, except Agag, so the king of the Amalekites. Uh, so one of the first things it would say is, all you got to do is go a little further in Samuel and start to see the Amalekites are still around, still strong, you know, still causing trouble. Uh, David has issues with them later on. Uh, when you read about Esther and Haman, the one who wants to genocidally annihilate the Jews, he is an Amalekite. He's like a descendant of... Okay, so uh, they're going to still be around cause problems. So this isn't like genocide, same thing we saw kind of earlier themes. Um, but then with Agag, there's a scene where Saul... Uh, is Saul doesn't kill the king, and that's what he gets reprimanded for. Uh, he, his naughty action is to not kill someone that he was supposed to, right? And sometimes I think this can get misread as like, Saul showed mercy, and he got in trouble for it, right? Uh, but it's helpful to zoom out and go, Saul's, Saul's not showing mercy. Like, one of the things that, um, when one of the reasons God gave the command, and this was the military stuff, was a primary motivator for warfare in this ancient time was to conquer your neighbors to be able to take their stuff. And so God says in the, in, in the promised land, you're not allowed to take plunder, to take booty, to take the kings for yourself and all that, you know? And so there, I think there's actually this picture going on where Saul gets in trouble because um, he takes plunder that he's not supposed to, sheep and goats, all that kind of stuff. And the king is kind of like the ultimate trophy, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, dude, I got... I'm trying to wear an analogy, like a sports analogy. You know, like where you got the person that you beat and you get to carry him around in a headlock for a while and go, look who I got, you know? And so the motivation is not mercy there. There's really a motivation of pride and of, of um, self-glory and self-glamorization and even enriching oneself with the plunder and the booty that he wasn't supposed to take and, um, and that pride of look who I conquered with, with Saul. So I think what he gets reprimanded for is um, violating the command of God, but the command of God being to not glorify yourself and be, be, and part of the reason God says is that the surrounding nations wouldn't be able to say, like, this was for enriching yourself and your own glamorization all. Yeah. Do you think it's kind of the Yeah. Is, uh, the whole reason why Saul attacked the Amalekites was because when their friends came out of Egypt, which was quite a bit of time before, the Amalekites had attacked them. So it was a retribution attack. So I think that one, one part yes. of the people know. And also, it's the part about Saul not taking and getting in trouble for that. I, yeah. yeah. So still the fact that God kind of saw violence as a word. This is what I imagine the friends saying. Mm. Yeah, now I have to confess, when I wrote 
skeletons and so when I was kind of the deepest in this stuff was probably about five years ago, so it's been a while. Some of this isn't completely as fresh as it used to be, uh, but it's true. So on the retribution angle, um, I do think there's something more complex. Some people have said it's like generations ago, the Amalekites did this to our great great ancestors, and so now, you know, like 200 years ago, your great 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 grandpa did something, so now I'm going to get you back. It's like, why does that still apply today? You know, uh, but really, when you read about the Amalekites in the kind of like Israel as a whole, there's like a consistent animosity and a consistent uh, pattern. So, uh, I mentioned Esther and Haman as another piece down the road. Um, so I don't think it's uh, I, I don't think it's simply depicted as scripture as like hundreds of years ago, something way back then happened. So much as like that is a an ancient characteristic of a, this ongoing relationship of animosity that like the Amalekites have a hostility towards God's people that is a desire to to wipe out and destroy. It. Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. Uh, the second part I'll just try to hit briefly. You mentioned with the wrath theme as well. I'm just gonna, you know. Uh, one of the ways I, I found really helpful to think about that, I think some people struggle with God's wrath, his vengeance, his anger. Um, and I think for some people it's like this, sometimes God's wrathful, sometimes he's loving. You know, like God wakes up on, sometimes on the happy side of the bed and woohoo, life is strolling through the fields and sunshine and roses. And sometimes God rolls out of bed, Arr! you know, and trampling down cities and I don't know. And which God are we going to get? You know, and, you're gonna, and I think that's not the picture at all. Like in scripture, I think the picture is that um, God is love. And even in his wrath, his anger, God's anger is driven by his love for the world. God gets angry, not in spite of his love, but because of his love for the world. Um, and how far to go in, down this rabbit hole? <laughs> like, uh, the, well, first, I, I remember there's a, a quote. I use in the, the Pursuing God, that second book goes more into, there's a whole section kind of wrath and what I think is happening there. Uh, there's a quote I love by a guy named Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian, who's reflecting kind of the aftermath of the genocidal type situation in his homeland. And he goes, I used to rebel against the idea of a God who is wrathful. Like how, how God, that, that, doesn't that contradict his love? God couldn't be wrathful with his love. And then I began to realize in the, my, the war-torn, you know, my own homeland, and looking around the world, like in the aftermath of Rwanda, where 800,000 people were murdered by their neighbors with machetes and all, like in 100 days. And in the aftermath of my own homeland, where people watched their neighbors and family members, you know, gunned down before their eyes by people who had been their next door neighbors and all. It's like, how could God see all this and not be angry? You know, how could God, if God, he said, I would have to rebel against a God who was not angry at the sight of the world's evil and how it ravages and tears our world apart. Um, I've come to the conviction that God is not wrathful in spite of being loved, that God is wrathful because of his love. And I think it's God's love for the world that gives rise to his anger against the things we do that tear each other apart and tear and distance us from, from him. Um, yeah, and then well, we could talk more about that if we wanted, if we have time, but there, there may be some other questions people want to go into as well. Books. Um, one more question. Oh, we'll go here to Grace. Oh. Grace, yes. Oh. Oh, Grace. Two more questions. She's yeah. got a good one. Great. Yeah. Yes, Grace. Um, back to when you were talking about the Holy War. Yeah. Um, does the stuff you were talking about apply to 
like wars nowadays or mm. like World War II and stuff like that where there's not a weaker side? Mm, that's a great question. Good. I didn't want to interrupt you. Is that the end of the question? Yeah. All right, that's a great question. Okay. Yeah, so how does this apply to war today or other times in history? Um, there are two general traditions in, in the church around this question. So one would be uh, just war, uh, and the other would be pacifism, right? And so uh, I actually think what we're talking about in terms of interpretation of Old Testament history is compatible with either. I think uh, whether just war or pacifism could, could uh, do this. And so here's, here's what I mean by that. So um, here, here's what I would say. We do not have... We do not have holy wars today like that scenario in the Old Testament. Um, I, I, I would say there's never been a war like that where God is the one, the primary agent doing the fighting directly on behalf of his people. Uh, but I do believe it's a foreshadowing of one that's coming in the end when God actually arises to tear down Babylon and establish his kingdom in its place. So I would say that war we were talking about and the one that's coming are very distinct from wars in the world question becomes, how do those relate to the wars that we tend to fight today? Uh, the, uh, so pacifism, uh, a lot of the authors have been inspired, I, I'm not, I, I land in the just war tradition, but a lot of the authors have been inspired with our uh, pacifist authors who are interpreting that Old Testament history. And one of the observations is because um, God is the primary one doing the fighting, because the primary command to God's people is be still, and watch me fight for you, the pacifist interpretation would be uh, we are not to participate in wars in our world today, uh, to be complicit in their violence, to be a part of uh, the problems they do, that our role or job is to uh, live faithfully before God. We can serve, we can proactively, like, we could be a medic on the front lines and go care for people who are wounded. We could lay our lives on the line, but we're not to take the power to kill into our own hands. That would be the pacifist interpretation. Uh, the just war interpretation would, would say um, what we see in this Old Testament history is the kind of wars that God fights, like the kind of motives that go into why God fights. So themes like to actually uh, rise up and stand against um, oppression against the weak or the downtrodden, uh, to, to, uh, that there's a role that government has, for example, to, would be the argument to protect its own populace from invasion. Uh, we see that the wars in the Old Testament are not uh, they're not aggressive, but are often defensive. Um, they're not for the purpose of enriching and aggrandizing oneself, but to protect from invasion. And uh, so that's, that's where I land, and there's a whole you know, conversation around there. Uh, but what I also would say is often I think people talk about just war and pacifism as if um, just war is way over here on one end of the spectrum, and pacifism is way over here on the other, and they're kind of these opposites that are radically against each other. And what I found is I think it's more like militarism is maybe on one end of the spectrum, that we should have heavy armaments and defend ourselves and pour all this money into being a, you know, a militant superpower. And then I'd say just war and pacifism are both together over on this end of the spectrum, maybe a little ways apart from each other, where both, I think, are in their best iterations usually extremely critical of a highly rampant militarism uh, that is big in my own country, <laughs> you know? And uh, one wants to say we should resist it by non-participation in it. Uh, the other, I think, says we should resist it by presenting a compelling vision of actually what just defense is for and looks like uh, in a way that actually critiques some of the most common uses of it. Um, 
essentially one of the biggest historical influences or proponents in just war theory was Augustine, the early church father. And he's not going, hey, just war, so look at all the wars Rome's fighting, isn't it great? <laughs> like, no, his like, magnum opus, The City of God, one of the most influential works in, in, in history, he raises the bar on this is kind of like what a just war would be, and then uses that bar to walk through all the Roman wars and pretty much down the line go unjust, 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 unjust. Like, he raises the bar in order to critique the norm rather than to legitimate it. So, Long-winded answer. That's a great question, Grace. That would be my thoughts. This question is M. And I think she's making me stand up. Um, you spoke earlier largely about like the importance of the fact that God is pursuing us and mm. it's us kind of essentially um, rebelling against that and mm. hardening our hearts against that. How in light of that do we understand things like Pharaoh and God hardening his heart? Because mm. to me, when I read that story, that's always been like an issue for me. Because I'm like, yeah. kind of feels unfair. It almost feels like Pharaoh's about to come around and then God hardens his heart. I'm like, yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay, great. Oh, man. So God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Uh, this is like a whole other. Um, well, here's some thoughts. I, I, uh, here's, here's some of my take, like diving into that a while ago. Um, I think, um, first off, I think it would be a, you know, a caricature misperception to go like, Pharaoh really wants God, but God's like, no, I'm going to harden you against me, you know? Uh, but actually, I think there's a lot of nuance going on in the biblical story. So uh, uh, the phrase, you know, of, about Pharaoh's heart being hardened shows up a lot in the story. And there are a number of occasions where, God, where it's Pharaoh hardening his heart against God. And there are a number of occasions where it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so there seems to be a symmetry there. Like it's not so much sometimes Pharaoh's doing it, sometimes God's doing it, as it's more, it seems like there's a narrative picture that it's a both end simultaneously, that God is at work, Pharaoh is hardening his heart against God, and God is at work in that itself. And there are a number of times, actually the majority, I think, where it's, it's a little more ambiguous who the primary, is it God or is it Pharaoh? It's just the hardening of his heart. Um, but here's one of the things I think is more interesting. There are three different Hebrew words that gets translated as hardening, right? And all of them have other narrative associations in the surrounding storyline. So the most dominant word, if you remember in Exodus 4 or Exodus 5, Exodus 4, I think, where um, God is calling Moses to go to Pharaoh, and he has him uh, hold out his staff, and it becomes a snake. And then the snake chases Moses. And then God has Moses turn around and grab the snake by the tail, and it hardens into a staff. That's the first time that primary word, harden, shows up. And it's got those narrative associations. I think it's foreshadowing what's going to happen, that Moses is going to go before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh is, the, and it's the picture of Pharaoh is embodying the power of the serpent, the enemy of God the, from the Garden of Eden. Like, it's going to chase Pharaoh and his people. And God is actually going to use Pharaoh's rebellion. And he's going to harden. He's going to use Moses to actually display his glory through Pharaoh's hardened pursuit of his people. Um, there's another word, but the, the third one that strikes me the most, I find really interesting is, um, this may be a weird note to land on, <laughs> but is a childbirth imagery where uh, it's the same word, the hardening, it's like the hardening as of labor pains, you know? And so the, uh, the, the uh, uh, foundational Old Testament place it shows up is where uh, Rachel is giving birth to the last of the 12 tribes, and she is so hardened, and the labor, the labor pains are so severe, so hard, that she dies in childbirth giving birth to the people of God. And I'd suggest, I think there's something of that echo 
in the Exodus story as well, that um, the Exodus is from one angle a childbirth image where God has sent the seed of his people into the womb of Egypt and they have grown and multiplied and grown big and numerous there. And now the plagues are in a sense like Pharaoh is refusing to let God's people go, almost like the pregnant mother refusing to give birth to God's child, you know? And now the plagues are in a sense a hardening. The plagues, it's not so much like I'm going to harden Pharaoh and do the plagues. The plagues are what's hardening Pharaoh. He's becoming hardened through the plagues against God delivering his people. And so the plagues are, I think from one angle, it's almost like, what's the word where you instigate childbirth? Like inducing labor, right? Like God is inducing labor against, you know, against the recalcitrant body of Egypt um, in order to deliver his people. And then ultimately they come out through the waters, like the birth canal, out into the wilderness where God provides for his people this dependence, this heavenly manna, and this water from rock God is providing for his people like an infant that are entirely dependent on him until they're old and mature enough to enter into the promised land. And then a lot of the prophetic imagery of what's the prophets later is that Israel is like an infant, a newborn in the season being carried along by God. All that to say, I think in the image of uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh hardening his heart, there are a whole lot of narrative associations that are at, at play there that add some nuance, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 